0: citizens of the People's Game. Welcome to a very special episode. We are marking the start of the summer proper with the big cricketing bonanza. Casey and I were down at the Junction Oval yesterday to take in the opening weekend of the WBBL. We've also got Gordon back from his temporary hiatus, newly refreshed but still bald, to preview the upcoming test series between Australia and India, which probably gets underway with more expectation than maybe any summer since last, given it was an Ashes summer and I've kind of just shot my point in the foot. So, guys, how are we?
1: Good, thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Gordon. It's good to have you back. I was very lonely last week without you.
2: I'm sure you would have taken up that, that space and just had a time to blossom, get yourself into form. <laughs> in that cricketing parlance, you know, the opportunity comes you have to take it with both hands, and I reckon you've done that. You've made yourself a solid 30 or 40 in are area to flourish the rest of the
0: summer. So uh, take the opportunity it. and run with it.
1: <laughs> Jack, good to see you. Looking better than you did yesterday, hungover at Junction Oval.
0: Which is, as we have just said on the first recording, because I forgot to hit record, uh, the most Australian place to be hungover, the Junction Oval, on a Sunday.
1: Absolutely. I think you you rocked it. You rocked the hungover look with your hoodie and your dark glasses and lying back on the lovely grass.
0: I think I looked a real picture with the ripped jeans and, you know, a real picture, Richie, with the <laughs> jeans and the sunnies and uh, and the bit where you did snap me while I was napping, which I thought was a little bit inconsiderate, to well, be honest.
1: Gordon wasn't there and he had to see you in all your glory. So I
0: don't I know if he did. I don't, I don't think it made his weekend any
2: better. <laughs> no, it definitely, it definitely lifted me a little bit whilst getting ready to bat, so...
0: What did you make of the opening weekend of the WBBL?
1: Yeah, it was really fun. Um I only got along to the Sunday's matches, which was a shame because the Saturday's matches were absolute blockbusters. So, missed those two great games and went there for Sunday to watch my primarily to watch my Renegades play who uh, lost in spectacular fashion, which was a bit of a shame to open their season that way, but it was a great weekend. Um, the setup down at Junction Oval is fantastic. The WBBL in Cricket Australia, whoever set that up, has done a really good job at making it really fan and family friendly. Um, the hill setup was great. They had all their blankets out there that we could sit on the hill and just relax. They had free fruit. They'll hand they so free bananas. I had at least.
0: So my <laughs> greatest thing is that potassium is a good hangover cure, mm. but. I think that's false because I had four bananas yesterday and my hangover was still pretty bad.
1: I think you probably hung over on potassium after that many bananas, (laughs) to be honest.
0: Meanwhile, the Renegades got absolutely thumped by the Thunder. They did. Um, What did they make? About 98. Mm. Um, So really, really grafted, to be honest, to their total and then the Thunder chased it down pretty easily in the end.
1: Yeah, and the players who played in the World Cup just didn't really perform, which is understandable considering like you know, really mm-hmm. the week that they had. So they're coming sort of off that amazing trip, and you can understand their tides tired. So like Sophie Molyneux didn't do that well, and Georgia Wareham wasn't that great. But, you know, it's the start of the season. They'll come back into form because they were fantastic in that um, World T20 uh, competition. So it's only the start. Yes, it was disappointing to start off the season with a loss, but it's okay. They'll come back into form. It's fine.
0: So I love the two games in a day format that they've run with for the opening three weekends of WBBL. I thought it was a great day out. They had so much entertainment. Um, friend of the pod, Bobby McCumber, did an unbelievable job MC. Oh, she's
1: great, isn't she?
0: Absolutely. Hilarious. And, and there was, I guess, like a good amount of accessory entertainment. Like mm-hmm. I thought there was actually, to be honest, I thought the things to do would actually look quite fun. I was eyeing that jumping castle off.
1: Yeah, you were. <laughs> it's probably a mistake in your state. The setup was fantastic. I think for what they did for kids who sometimes really get a little bit bored at the cricket, kept them entertained, kept them fed, kept them hydrated with free smoothies. They had all the stuff there. Um, They had a fan zone out the back, which I didn't actually make my way to. So I think they did a really good job from a kid's perspective. I think it was really great that all the players over the weekend just were there and were just available and accessible. So. As I said, I was only there on the Sunday, but the players who played the day before came and watched the games and were in their uniform. So um, even if kids didn't know exactly who they were, they knew they were athletes and went up to them and got autographs and photos, and the players were great with that sort of stuff. I think um, women's cricket has done really well in that space and been really accessible to fans. So it was just really fun, and yeah, I had a great time. I hope you had a great time despite big, being hungover. It was a big tick. Yeah, big tick. definitely a big yeah, tick. Good
0: environment. Standard of play was is great. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love watching it. Um, would 100% go again? Hopefully with those for hangover.
1: Yeah, good call.
0: So, uh, Australian Test Cricket will leap into a new post-sandpaper gate age on Thursday, and not simply because the opening test of the summer will be in Adelaide rather than Brisbane. With the godlike figure of Virat Kohli looming over the build-up like a spectre the mood feels a little gloomy already despite the fact that india have not won a test on these shores in more than a decade so gordon how excited are you for this one to kick off so there's like the the theory of
2: basic human needs and it's like you know nourishment <laughs> employment relationships <laughs> my basic my number one basic need in life is test cricket that's how excited I am. I'm going to be a more fulfilled human over the next six months because Test Cricket is on our shores, fully accessible. The back page, the front page of our newspapers, the front page of websites, the first thing you hear on radio, the first thing you click on in TV, at the forefront of everyone's mind will be 22 men in sullied whites throwing around a red pill and hitting it with a wooden stick, and it's just the greatest thing on earth.
0: So I was looking forward to this pod because I knew that I'm excited, but I knew that you would be like double or triple times my uh, excitement. The,
2: I, my excitement has no limit. It's, it's like a inverse
0: parabola. So what did you make or take from the game between the CA- CAXI and the tourists? That India
2: do not care for tour games. That's <laughs> all I took from that. They can t- you can take nothing from that. Like Shaw got injured... That's terrible. He'll miss now. That's that's the only thing they'll take out of that is that one of their best uppercomers will be missing due to injury. Yeah, the CA – because, like, it's been a long decline in tour matches. So, like, one tour match is not enough. They've just played a bunch of meaningless one-dayers and, and T20 – well, yeah, T20 internationals. And now they're like, oh, we've got one four-day game against a bunch of 19-year-olds who who are here to prove a point – well, they're not, not going to get anything from bowling at them. The yep. that level between them and Shield and then the Australian team is, is so vast. On yeah on a pitch that won't replicate the pitches that we will see for the rest of the summer, none of it makes any sense. And that's the same as we saw when Australia went to Pakistan. They they knew that the UAE was going to be spin, spin on day one. We're going to be playing against four spinners, so Pakistan rolls out a team that has six six pacemen, <laughs> of which only one had played first class cricket before in an absolute farce. and it's just been we well, now it's, every time a team comes out we just try and shaft them by playing yeah. a under 19 team or a or a you know a, a hodgepodge patchwork team and saying oh well we're not going to help you prepare cuz we want to beat you
0: yeah so that was
2: mission yeah. mission accomplished for the CA11 especially when Darcy Short goes now nah, you can if you want to bat again you have to bowl us out like come on champ like <laughs>
0: this game's not about you it's about them but
2: yeah. it is what it is.
0: It's interesting though because that's a common thread, and there was talk about the Ashes in England next year and the short turnaround from the World Cup and how that affects the tour game. It just it staggers my own mind that in '48, for example, the Invincibles played pretty much every county side. I think they played 40 matches all up on a tour of England.
2: But that makes sense because it's only one form of cricket, exactly. And that's that's where the game has moved on so much from and, then. And in essence of, of what you get out of a tour a tour or a tour match or a bunch of uh, first-class games as warm-ups, they essentially had that in the T20s. Like They're, they're out there, they're playing against decent opposition, they're getting bat on ball, they're, they're, they're going through their bowling motions, they're doing all the things they need to do to check off the side, are you healthy, are you fit, are you ready to go? It just wasn't you know, in white clothes. Mm. But like for all intents and purposes, that's
0: how they treat the shorter formats now anyway. They are the tour matches before Test Series. So how are the Australians going to line up on Thursday morning at Adelaide Oval? So I think there's a couple of contentious
2: points here. Uh, definitely the openers uh, as going to be the one that they can probably play around with it a little bit. The I suppose conventional thinking would be you have the Victorian pair of Finch and Harris opening, which is strange because Finch has never really opened it in first-class cricket before. Mm-hmm. So other than going over to the UAE and opening in those tests...
0: He's usually batted middle order for Victoria at four, five, or six. And this is a vastly different challenge. Opening in Australia is not the same as opening in India. No, but it's probably easier as well. So
2: people can say that he's always open in the one days for Australia. He's had a pretty good success rate doing it in that position and doing it in Australian conditions. So, and we have since the days of Warner being our number one. Really like the the partnership of an, a really aggressive with a slightly more conservative, and that, that's what you get with Finch and Harris as opposed to Finch and Kawaja, um, whereas where they're both quite shot making players first, um, so that could be a reasonable combination. Otherwise, you could say Finch down to four, five, six, and then open with Kawaja, and his numbers at, at opening has been really good. I think he averages about ninety. Yeah. He has only played about six or seven tests at number one.
0: He's also on record said that he prefers three.
2: Yeah again it depends how you clip those statements cuz it was one of those very uh, boring elite sportsman interviews where he goes oh like i don't mind batting at 3 but like whatever the team needs and i'll do whatever role is required and like g- whatever Langer <laughs> says i'll do you know it's all great so he really didn't answer that question at all he just put those put those words in a in a line that said yeah i'll i'll bat at 3 if you want and then the bowls picked themselves with coming stark hazelwood in line and they oh, yeah. they all stay fit They'll play every game and do an absolute mountain of work and hopefully take a
0: bucket load of wickets. Which is a very good segue into the next little agenda here because the common theme and thought is that this series is something of a bygone conclusion. But when you look at India's record and how hard it is to win here, it's very hard to see it that way purely on the numbers. My biggest question is those bowlers, particularly Cummins, Stark and Hazelwood, are going to have to bowl unbelievably well for us to win.
2: Yeah, and the concern I have is that Stark hasn't bowled particularly well in tests for a very long time now. He yep. is he has been fanned out a little bit as a bit of a a two trick pony. He's he's got two very good tricks. He's got a, a vicious bouncer, he's got a, an absolute rip snorking uh, Yorker. But then in between he doesn't seem to have the consistency or the patience to bowl that, that test that test corridor, whereas a guy like Pat Cummins does, coming up back up through the ranks now like a James Patterson does and even even you should, if you wanted to roll the dice and play a Siddle and a Tremaine, they'll never take his spot because he has the raw pace that those two guys don't. But I think that we'd almost be better served with using Cummins in the Stark role and then Tremaine in the in the Cummins role or a Ciddle in the Cummins role and having Hazelwood as the other opener. But, again, that that will take a different approach. And if, if there was ever time to take a different approach when we're going through this cultural rejuvenation of being less macho and bravadoistic and more, you know, thinking men's cricketers and being more about the spirit of the game, well, then pick pick a guy like Tremaine who's taken, you know,
0: about a million wickets at, at shield level and never been rewarded for it. Give him a shot. So you've already picked a hole in our supposed strength. How will the Indian Quick Quartet stack up? It is supposedly, as several newspapers have called it, the best touring fast bowling squad they've ever brought here. I think more of that's
2: a, a diss on the rest of the pace attacks they've brought out here. Mm-hmm. And 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 to be fair, it's going be, it's hard to be a, a quick in India because you get brought up on on sand bowls. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, why would you ever be a quick in India when you can be you bowl spin and take a bajillion wickets? Yeah. To be said that they've done really they've done pretty well overseas. They did they were they were very competitive as a, as a quartet in South Africa, and that's and then in, in in England as well they were pretty competitive. So they've they've done all right, but they haven't gone overseas and taken bulk wickets and and. and Challenged batsmen, even though our two best batsmen will be missing. I think on flat decks, the likes of Finch, Kawaja, Sean Marsh, Hanscom or Head are all good enough to face good bowling, which they do in shield level all the time anyway. So I think this will be a lot this is not the doom and gloom that everyone's expecting because we're missing Warner and Smith. It might actually be it may actually be a lower level of cricket, but a better contest. Which might actually help cricket. And it's, and it's ratings and it's kind of popularity because you'll potentially see better games or closer games. Because, yeah, if you add Smith to that lineup especially and Warner as a flat-track bully, then it's, it's very much advantage Australia and it's another boring test summer.
0: Yeah, and people are very quick to forget that we won the Ashes 4-0 mm-hmm. last summer, you know, like less than 12 months ago. And I know that those two outs are significant, but the flip side of our atrocious away record is that we are nigh on, like most teams in test cricket, unbeatable at home. So, how on earth can the Australians stop Virat Kohli? The Age had it differently on Saturday and Sunday. So, on Saturday, Dean Jones wrote that a fourth stump line is a must to Virat Kohli. On Sunday, Sunday, John Perrick implored our bowlers to aim for middle and off to ensure false shots have confidence. So, even the Age can't reach an agreement. Where do you bowl to the bloke? How do we stop him? Is this summer simply going to be the jewel in Virat's crown?
2: In reality, there are times in whatever level of cricket you play, you'll face, a spe- you'll face a batsman especially who is just a class above. And so every batsman will nick off early and you just got to take that chance. Otherwise, they're in and then they just bat. If, if Coley gets in, you can't get him out. And the numbers backed it up. He goes big all the time whenever he gets in. So what do you do? It's like how do you get Steve Smith out? Well, you can say you can bowl fourth line, you can bowl at his pad, you can do whatever you want you has just got to be patient. you gotta, you got to know that a, a good ball can get any batsman out. It's all the basic cliches that everyone uses. But none, none of those two – he doesn't have a deficiency. You don't become the undisputed best batsman in all three forms of the game with an obvious flaw in your technique. That, that He is the best batsman on the planet as we speak, or the best batsman who's allowed to play on the planet as we speak, and you got just hope that he nicks off. Oh, that's it. That's it. That's that's all you've got. There's no weakness to it. Get down on one knee, pray. The only other thing with batsmen, especially like Collie, and a little bit like Smith when he's when he's playing as well, is to to their ego. And so that's where. But again, like we won't, we probably won't do that as a as a team now because we we can't we can't be seen to be getting into verbal stouts at press conferences. We can't be seen to going the man and not the and not the game. So I think if it's just if you just leave Collie to his devices. Nick him off early like every other batsman in the world who's ever played the game in the history of the sport, or let him or watch him make 200 three times this summer.
0: It's going to be fun for all involved.
2: <laughs> well, it'll be fun for the massive Indian fans. There are going to be a huge numbers of Indian fans at all these games, especially Boxing Day, especially since we're still in this limbo of, of where our loyalties lie and how much we love the Australian cricket team at the moment. Boxing
0: Day is going to be mentally like an Indian home game, I reckon. Which is such an advantage for them when they tour. Mm. Albeit one that they haven't been able to capitalise on. No, but they've come close. A, a, a mm. bit, especially of, of late. I mean, and they are undisputedly the best team in the world at the moment, the Indians. So I don't think that there's any...
2: Well, no, they are disputably the best team in the world. Mm. They didn't win in South Africa they didn't win in England. And yeah,
0: they play 3,000 games at home, so... <laughs> 3,000. Yeah, pretty much. So, pretty sure. How big a loss is the teenage wonder kid to the summer for the first part of it, at the very least?
2: He's a is a he's a big loss to the public. I think again, cricket as a as a spectacle. Better if he's playing because it's just another thing to focus on. It's another another yep. uh, yeah, story no, another storyline uh, for the Indian team. They have got definitely enough talent to cover in the bats. To, yeah.
0: So, Murli Vijay to throw back to the tour game that doesn't matter would be is the replacement mm. for sure. And made a hundred in the second dig of that game. Yeah. Um, and is a fairly well-established test batsman anyway. Yeah. But I think it is purely that ability or that lack of ability straight off the bat to compare this kid at 19 to some of the wonders that we've seen tour in, in the form of Tendulka and of Lara, because the stats in two test matches are 134, 70, and 33 not out. Like, the bloke has not failed yet. I know he's only played three innings, but... Yeah. Um, And the Peter Law feature, if you get a chance to read it, in The Australian, that was clearly written before he got injured, because I'm assuming... A, got knocked off the page before because the injury story had to be filed is a really, really good yarn on how this kid was eventually bred from the age of two to be a cricketer before he was even taller than the bat. He was batting. Um, His father quit his job to help raise this prodigy. It's super, super interesting. Um, And in Indian cricket, it's it's very hard to be the wonder kid because everyone wants to be a super, super, Hmm. super cricketer from a young age. So, are we going to be able to make enough runs? What's your overall series prediction, Gordon? Uh, I reckon in a four-test
2: series, we're going to see at least one draw. Now, it probably will be Melbourne on the world's most boring pitch. The I'm pudding. Saying. The pudding. So, spend a lot of time in the boring for that one. Uh, and I reckon Australia <laughs> win 2-1 based on our bowling. You've got Australia winning 2-1. 2-1. Wowee.
0: That would be something.
2: Yeah, that's my very uh, optimistic look out on that. I'm going to go the flip of that. I'm going to go in year two one.
0: Brings me to the people's question and in The Weekend Australian, Gideon Haig asserted that test cricket is still the people's game. We won't be inquiring about the use of our IP, but we will be using his article to segue into our people's question for the week. As Haig wrote, test cricket in Australia remains of the people, by the people and for the people. So, is Gideon correct? Is test cricket the real people's game? And if so... Is he right to say that it's only in the sunlight hours that the people's game can be redeemed. So, I'm going
2: to throw to Casey here because Casey's a bit bit nervous about talking about cricket. Cause she doesn't think that she's, you know, of uh, of of the appropriate ilk to discuss the the, you know, the the uh, intricacies of the of the white-cloth game. But his like Gideon's point there is that it's it's about you as much as it's about me the nuffy. Mm. So, and like, of all the forms of cricket, so like domestic T20s, T Twenty Internationals, World Cups, Test matches, pointless One is. like where does Test cricket sit? Where does where does the the thoughts of a Boxing Day five day Test match sit amongst the rest of your thoughts about cricket in general?
1: Pointless One Day is—you trying to convince me on a point there, Gordon?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Slightly leading question, hmm. there, yes.
1: Yes, I've noticed. Um, well, my relationship with cricket is interesting because. As you mentioned, I'm not that across cricket, but I really enjoy watching cricket. And I couldn't tell you my thoughts on selection. I couldn't tell you all the players. I don't really care about it that much in that sense. But I really like watching it. So I've been to, uh, I think, the last eight out of 10 years of Boxing Day test matches um, live just because I really enjoy going. And I think I enjoy going because I just liked, I like the feel of being there and it's something that I find really relaxing sitting in the MCG watching Test Cricket. And I do like the action, even though I probably do find it a little bit slow. And they are long days if there's not a lot happening. But I do fundamentally enjoy that experience. But I couldn't tell you why. Um, because... On the contrast is I really love watching Big Bash as well. So I don't consider myself a cricket purist and that Big Bash is diluting the pure form of cricket because I don't really have an opinion on what the most pure form of cricket is and I'm not that much of an Arnold fan. But I, there's something about cricket, and I do like the one days as well. Um, I don't know if they're pointless or not because I don't have opinion on that either. But I just like watching the sport. There's something about the rhythm of it. But I, if I had to choose out of the three, now that Big Bash is established... I would probably choose Big Bash, and it's because of the way that the league is set up that I can watch a game every single night when I'm at home um, in my house cooking dinner doing stuff around the place, it's always on and I just love that because to me that just makes me feel that it's summer, the cricket's on the TV all the time and I just really enjoy that experience. And then I do like going to Big Bash Live as well and I know it's probably a bit tacky with all the theatrics and the fireworks and the music and the dancing and the flashing stumps or whatever, but I'm into that um, as an entertainment and a bit of a spectacle. Like that appeals to me. So I don't have an opinion on Gideon's opinion because to me – all forms of cricket are for the people because I think I'm a very generic person in the cricketing space and all of the forms of cricket appeal to me as a sports fan in general. So I don't know if that's reflective of people or just me as a bit of a weirdo sports fan. Mm.
0: So to throw back to the article, one of Haig's main points is about affordability and how relative to test cricket in England, our our test cricket is always on free to air. England lost the rights to Sky, I think, as early as the mid 2000s to their tests. So it's accessible on TV and it's accessible because of the prices that allow you to get through the gate, Mm. which you don't necessarily get in other countries. The flip side, and this is probably the line of argument that you've just brought up that disagrees with what he said, is his belief is that for it to be truly the people's game, it should be during the daytime, which allows and suits local people, whereas the day-night test match, which has been scrapped for Adelaide essentially favours television audiences and did a lot to screw local businesses in the Adelaide CBD.
1: But I don't understand how that appeals to the people because they usually start on weekdays, am I correct? It's Thursday. So what about people who are working? Um, you
0: you take know? the day off work, guys.
1: Oh, sorry, I'm your so understanding. australian If your boss makes you bloody go to work <laughs> go to on, on day, the day. F- <laughs> to Chuck a sticky to go to the cricket, <laughs> Literally.
0: Your boss flog if he doesn't right. let you. <laughs> I mean, and also, I, I think that's part of it, though, because in Adelaide they only have one test. Mm. So, if your boss your boss genuinely will not be remotely surprised if three quarter of the office takes Thursday and Friday off to go to the cricket,
1: some understanding bosses out there, yeah, it's great to see.
0: And then the rest
2: of the dates kind of fit within those uh, off periods anyway. So Boxing Day through to those next five days mm. is, is no work anyway. And then New Year's Day is the yes, well, the New Year's test is yeah, the first Thursday after New Year's. So yeah, those two are, are Gibbies. Gideon, Gideon is. Beyond a Puritan, he's almost like a evangelical Purist. <laughs> like he just, he just obviously really, really loves Test cricket, and he's there are a lot of things that he he write in his writing that shows that like, that's the cricket that he likes, and that's the style of cricket he likes. And, and like if he could have his way, I'm sure he'd bring back timeless cricket and all the things that he wants out of that. But as as Katie said, like cricket is cricket in many ways, and in, especially if you're trying, if Cricket Australia is trying to target that mass audience. So I know that like when I watch cricket I prefer test cricket because of the intricacies of what happens in a test cricket day and and that pacing is true cricket pacing is test cricket pacing. There's enough that happens in the day to make it exciting and create tension but there's enough there's enough space in between the key events that helps build that tension whereas there's no there's no payoff there's no like if T20 cricket and one day cricket for me is like a really cheesy pop the packet avengers film. Like, you, you go there for the special effects, you go there for, like, there's going to be explosions, there's going to be some fights, and at the end it's all going to be okay, because it doesn't matter. Whereas in test cricket, and we've seen this even in the last couple of overseas tests, we saw Pakistan, New Zealand, we saw England and Sri Lanka, like, they play for four or five days, and then and there's, like, this three-hour period at the end, which the whole thing comes to a crescendo, and there's a huge payoff. Because they put they've put so much into it it's so hard to play test cricket, whereas the selections around one day and t twenty cricket are so kind of flippant nowadays because of the workloads they need to bring people in bring people out but to wear a, a a test cap for your nation is really really hard it's you know less than a tenth of a percent of the playing population ever get to do yep. it so it still has that 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 kind of payoff and that kind of prestige and even like even when crickets in crisis in Australia, even now you look at social media and the general. Cultural pop cultural parlance is about people are posting on Instagram today. Uh, uh, you've just matched Tinder, cr- test cricket, and doing nothing at work on a Thursday. Like those things, <laughs> it's just it's just part of the the Australian summer culture, as you said. It's like, it's just that you, it's going to be on, and you know that those voices, those tones, those sounds let you know that oh, it's about summertime. It's about to be the best time of year. Mm. We all get to relax a little bit. We all get to settle into what is the people's game because of kind of what happens around cricket as opposed to what happens at the cricket as well.
0: Yeah, and I think, well, there's a point that I would make in terms of it not being the people's game, because I think the fact that we have not enough long-form cricket for women is an issue. I now watch the WBBL, and one of my immediate outtakes was, I want to see them play a longer form where their skills are tested to a greater degree, was one of my outtakes. I don't know whether that affects... It's not going to affect the way that test cricket is viewed, but I just think that we shouldn't shut one gender out of it to the extent that we currently do in the scheduling
2: yeah no no I agree with that I will bring up a point we made last week about the W league is that are you okay with that being played to significantly emptier stands yes yeah cool and that that would be the that would be their like Creed Australia's concern is to go the opposite thinking almost is that like we're going to start with WB I going to have more one- day internationals for the women and then build out to more tests as opposed to going straight to tests because it's like well they find it hard enough to fill stands for the men's for the men's tests that have been around for hundreds of years for five days. and they would be concerned that they won't be able to do that at all for a newly established competition. And that was kind of proven when they had their one-off Ashes test against, yep. the, against the English. But I think... Test the skills. Test the skills, yeah, exactly. Like- and like at the end of the day, like how much is going to cost you? Not that much. Write it off in your marketing budget yeah. if you have to. You have plenty of money in the coffers. Yeah.
0: That, that's probably a little seg But I think that um, the main point of the article is that redemption for the Australian cricket team... Can only come in a home test series, and that moment of reckoning has now arrived. It could never, it could come to a partial extent in a thing like the Pakistan series, which garnered interest, but the home test series is the only way that we can step away from what happened in South Africa and into a new era. How do you think we do that, though? Like, is winning, is it just winning? Well, I don't think it's about that now. You don't I don't think it's about winning. No, I think this summer is about. Have, I think what we need, whether we win or we lose, because my thing my thing here is the only thing Australian cricket can't afford is to get spanked. Like, we can't afford to lose 4-0, right? But say we lose 2-1, it's really competitive. It garners public attention. It's played in the right spirit. Australian public goes, oh, we've cleaned our image up. Yeah, we get Smith and Warner back. We'll probably start winning a little bit more with them. I think we can get ourselves to a position where we're like, we're going okay, and we now behave like adults by the end of the summer?
2: I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about how we, or how they, it's not we, I'm not out there, unfortunately, uh, how they will behave if they find themselves behind in this series. The though. Australians? Yeah. Yep. Because the only, like, they've only taken three people out of that squad. Everyone else was there when the sandpaper get happened, and everyone else has been a product of the decline of acceptable behaviours, and which is what we've seen with like, the clerks of the world who came out with his with his stash about like his role when he was a leader of the team, and that divide's been there for ages. And we've had I've had kind of debates and arguments with some of my more nuffier cricket friends about, well, this is the Australian way. The Chapel brothers forced their own brother to bowl underarm at New Zealand to win a one-off game when they when when they could have defended six off the last ball. And That was in the seventies. We've been doing we've been doing really. Really disgusting cricket acts for forty plus years, and we blame one team and three blokes for when we go too far. And like Sam Gates, no, no further away from Monkey Gate from us having having fisticuffs for the for the same players getting into actual brawls outside of the games, for borderline cheating by bowling underarm, for being involved in match fixing. We've yeah. been doing this for a very very long time, and to think that we can just turn it around. And not win that way when Lange was involved in all those teams. All these players have grown up with those guys as their mentors. It seems a bit strange that we can suddenly flick those switches, mm-hmm. especially when blokes like, especially when blokes come out from those bygone eras and say, "No, no, the only way that we can play Australian cricket is to play hard, whatever that means, and to avoid crossing the line, whatever that is." <laughs>
0: Segue you straight into book club as yeah. we're getting into that territory, but just leave that is redemption possible question hanging over the pod cave like Virat Coley. Um, so, book club this week is crossing the line, also by Gideon Hague. We're having a very Gideon themed week. We've obviously read this book, which is essentially well, tracks the course of Australian cricket um, really from Sandpaper Gate, starts there, jumps back in time to the beginnings or as he claims, a certain point where this began to go downhill and then takes you back so you finish at Sandpaper Gate. The question you've kind of just brought up, Gordon, and I think this is really one of the central questions I had reading the book, is does this book actually go back far enough? It doesn't really go back, say, I don't think, in detail to something like the Chapel era, when I would argue that it probably could.
2: It depends on how much of a Puritan you are about cricket. Mm -hmm. So the Chapel era... Uh, coincides with World Series cricket, and that's when you say, like Don Bradman said, that we ruined, like we ruined the game, because he was staunchly against players being paid, because then suddenly they're doing this for a profession, they're not doing it for the love of the game, and you can, and if you wanted to be a real, yeah, wilting lily about that, then, uh, then that's when you say, that's when you say the decline started when we start paying people to do sport and not do real jobs. Because then you have the pressures. Then you have the pressures of I want to keep my contract. I want to like that's how a Bancroft thing happens. Yes, Smith and wanted time to do it, but he's like, no, I like, I want to have my six hundred thousand plus dollar Australian contract. I want to stay in this team for years on years. I need to do what the captain says. If that involves being an idiot and rubbing a ball with sandpaper, quite clearly, and then trying to hide it down my box, then I'll do it because I want to be in this team. And you do that because of the financial pressures, but also the prestige, but mostly because you know that. I've just spent the last six years trying to get to this position, and get this job. Now I've got it and I wanted to make
0: $600,000 doing anything else. Yeah. And there's also a point to which, so this book is about 180 pages. It comes as a sports short book, which is uh, really has just recently been launched as a series by Slattery. I don't think it's coincidence that the next book is on the Bradman Packer deal, which goes back right to the heart of what you're talking about, which will be written by um, Dan Bredick. So it's, I'm not saying that. I think Hay could have gone further, but I think within his mandate, he probably didn't need to. Hmm. Um, particularly given the length of the book, because I mean, how long is a piece of string? Do we end up back in the 1800s? Well, I reckon if there's one man who could do it, it'd definitely be Hay. Well, exactly, because I also think that our attitudes in sport were very much formed by um, our early experience as a nation. We've he- heard people talk about this previous about how we were built on war and we were built on sport as ways of proving our worth. And I think that is still significant to something like Sandpaper Gate because winning became probably as important or more important to Australia than it did to other nations because of how we used it to give ourselves national esteem.
2: Absolutely, especially especially in cricket. We've used cricket to to validate that, that, that Australian almost Anzac spirit since since the Anzacs existed.
0: Because it's, I mean, there's a great quote in Ashes Fever, which is a doco about 05, which is something, I can't remember who it's by, it was a Sun Journal. And it, the quote is essentially words to the effect of it's the vicious pigs we dispatch down under coming back up to slaughter us. And it's, so it's convict revenge on the Brits. And that's the Ashes as a significant cultural moment. And that has sort of manifested itself throughout cricketing culture, irrespective of who we're playing. Hmm. So, the book itself, um, I think I said to both of you that I reckon Gideon Hay could write about grass growing and make it interesting. You could probably write about paint drying as well. Um, well, he did write about asbestos, and that was actually very captivating. And so
2: you, uh, he has proven
0: your point. He's almost gone there. Um, so the structure is very much in line with public sentiment. I think the central question of the book is, like, how did this happen? Um, so do you find or do we find that even as I think we'd consider ourselves or at least you two are fairly intellectual. Um, does Gideon Haig make himself inaccessible at any point with his vocab and the way that he writes?
1: Yes, which I hate saying because I love Gideon because he's probably the reason that I ri- I read cricket writing because, as I mentioned before, cricket is not my sport. Um, but I will read anything that Gideon writes primarily because of his writing style because I am such a fan of writing and I think he's just the most beautiful writer and his vocabulary to me is inspiring. Um, but I think for perhaps casual sports fans who do just want the question answered, what happened? I don't know if, if this, this is an easily accessible text for people who just want it really laid out for them with, I don't know, no nonsense language, I guess. But I mean, it, as you mentioned, it is a sports short, so it is quite a short read. So this might be Entry level Hague for readers, maybe I don't know.
2: But I will say that I think Hague and Test cricket are like very suitable bedfellows because they're not meant to be for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like the origin of Test cricket is the nobility, the gentlemanly. Like you don't like not everyone got access to that, and that's that's the spirit that he wants to maintain out of his cricket. Like he, that's where he comes from. And so his writing, he writes for himself more than anyone else.
1: Yeah, which is goes, uh, why I love him too, yeah. yeah.
2: And so you look at all of his projects and all of his, all of his pieces he's ever written, he writes for himself first and then enough people read it so he can get paid for it. I actually like it because if you are either a cricket nuffy or a literature nuffy, you'll read him and you'll go, no, what does that word, I know what that word vaguely means, but what does it exactly mean? And I'll read most of his stuff with a dictionary and then I actually get Double pleasure out of it. It is like what it is like reading like like hardcore literary nonfiction. Mm. Yeah. And so it's like for for the word nerds out there, and he and it probably and if you ask him, he's probably more of a word nerd first, and he is a cricket fan.
1: Yeah, that's probably true. Mm. Yeah,
2: there's no doubt. So like so he's running for, he's running for those that live in the Venn diagram. He's running for those who live in in either of those two circles, and yeah, and he and we'll look back, you know, fifty years. 100 years from now, and we'll go, this is the writing you get. And then, like, he'll be up there with the, the legends of all the American sports writing, especially from the days of, like, boxing. Like, cricket is for Australian, like, boxing is for Americans in its in its golden era. When people writing about Muhammad Ali, yeah, 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 yeah. the really language that they comparison. used yeah. was this was this really, like, well-thought-out, ex- exotic, eloquent language to describe a really important cultural significant figure in that time. And Gideon uses the same to, to, for the same... I'd say cricket has the same importance to Australia as Muhammad did and boxing did in the, the Halcyon years of that sport. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind. I, I really enjoy it. And I think, yeah, if you pick up a, you can pick up a Gideon reader and not know the exact meaning of words but still get the
0: gist. And then hopefully it inspires you to go, actually, no, what does that word exactly mean? I do agree, though, that it's probably perfect for us as a demographic, but it can be, like test cricket, inaccessible to some. I don't think that's intrinsically a problem because, as you say, he writes predominantly from self. I mean, he's written books about um, Victor Trumper. Like he's vi- he's taken on tasks that are clearly a predominantly a personal interest. Hmm. And I, I mean, I love the googling of the words. Like I found one of my favourite ones from this book is austerica, which is an academic term um, that is used for cultural borrowing of Australia from America after the nineteen fifties. I'm like, how is that word not more widely used? It's perfect for what. We see it, so many different sporting. It's Austerica, the Big Bash, the NBL, they're all Austerica. We're just mm. nicking mm. things from, from the Americans. There's nothing original and Australian about that phenomenon. And to, like, to create more comparisons between Gideon Cricket, you can have
2: riders who are, like, who are really efficient, who, who score lots of runs, who are accumulators of, of, of work and words, but they're not as fun to, to read or listen to. And you can have batsmen in cricket that, are, that make less runs but do it in a better fashion. A bit in a more stylish and eloquent fashion, you should go, go Glenn <laughs> Maxwell. Well, Glenn Maxwell. Glenn Maxwell is more is actually more like another writer that I really enjoy, um, Dan uh, Lipke. Yep. yep Glenn yep. Maxwell <laughs> writes haiku poems about cricket. Like that's what he's that's what his batting style is. But like even like a Usman Khawaja, you know, he's he's an eloquent batsman. But like yeah, that's kind of how I compare Gideon to other writers. But then
1: like Gideon is scoring lots of runs. Isn't this like his fifth book published this year?
2: He also took five for on the weekend. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's doing everything. He's written books about everything. He just finds it. Cricket's obviously a very intense side passion, but as a proper journalist, he just goes: Is there a story? Can I tell it to the people? And can I make it? Can I write it in a language that will make it a story worth
0: rereading even after the time of this story has passed? Um, one of the questions, and this is a bit of a litmus test, because I was away when the 2015 World Cup was on. But one of my feelings, having thought about that now in retrospect and having read the book, is that one of the things that came out of that World Cup was that the sentiment towards our cricket team was changing. And I don't know whether that was a reflection of the fact that ODI cricket has declined or whether people were already seeing player behaviour. Because it felt like, to me, that World Cup victory at a home World Cup was less celebrated than some of our other and earlier World Cup victories.
2: But to be fair, like, here I think was actually quite – there were some amazing games. Okay. It was actually probably the best. Like the World Cup as a whole tournament was probably the best advertisement for one day cricket mm. in the last yeah, know, five of, years. Yeah, I mean,
0: we lost to New Zealand at Eden Gardens, didn't we?
2: Yeah, in yeah. a in a game where both teams had quicks taken fifers and <laughs> on hat tricks and yeah, 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 it was mental, low scoring, crazy cricket. And then we came out and we just destroyed them in the in the final. So yeah, I don't think I don't think that was the Decline. No, I just
0: I was interested in how yeah. you guys had I read think, that from a closer to home.
2: I think more of the decline was the English Ashes, as opposed to anything else.
0: The seven, the sixty not, the sixty odd at Nottingham. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, so I'm going to jump into talking about Darren Lehman because I think Gideon goes quite hard on Darren Lehman, and one of the things that he kind of raises a little bit in terms of the Warner and Smith relationship is the issue of followership, which is something that esteemed cricket writer Ed Smith, who's one of my all-time favourites, has written about in some detail. And so I wonder whether, and this is it's well expressed that Australian cricket had a leadership crisis, but to what extent did we also have a crisis of followership or a lack of willingness to follow? Especially since the days of having
2: coaches, coaches and elite performance staff and all the other auxiliary staff members, the role of the captain has less the role of any one person in a cricket team has less significance on and less influence on the rest of those players. So when Steve War was captain of the test team, he was the leader of cricket in Australia. He set the standard for everyone who ever played the game during his during his reign. And and so on and so forth to everyone before him. But then from probably Ricky Ponting onwards, when we start getting into that High performance mentality, and we have more and more people and more and more professionals around that, that environment. The responsibility gets diluted, which is probably a good thing for the individual, because that's probably a massive responsibility to have. But yeah, but then within that, you have people being like, "Well, I don't need to follow. I'm following Lehman and not Smith, or I'm following the Pat Howard and not Lehman, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. You have these. There's more, you're more likely to have these like fraternities split up and create create fracas, like we saw with Caddish and, and Clark in those environments than you do when you have one leader and
0: it's essentially, well, follow me or don't play in my team. So how much of that that system, having changed so much, clearly lends itself to it being harder to follow? Because you've got a system that is that has so many different points of contact and a system that players were becoming disillusioned with at a high performance level. So that environment intrinsically lends itself to less willing followership in many cases.
2: Especially when you get promised things, like especially when... Like different players get treated different ways, so there's still if you have and a lot of this I think a lot of this does come back to the Pat Howard era of high performance where you go you've got players like Ed Cowan grafting thousands and thousands of runs at first class cricket and getting ignored, and then you've got other players getting like like a Travis Head getting streamlined through the system because he's got extreme talent and he looks great when he bats, so let's get him in there quicker. And there's rules for some and rules for other, and the selection and the criterion doesn't work. And then you have the diminishing of everything else. So. Australian Creed has been fairly successful for its whole existence, especially for a nation that's so small compared to the other nations that we play against. And then that's been built on having a super, super competitive domestic se- like competition with the Sheffield Shield. And then once we became more and more professional, more and more elite, we decided that that wasn't good enough. We need to have more elite pathways, more elite programs. We need to pick our talent younger. And then you diminish the things that made it work in the first place. And so then you get, you know, you're getting told by your state coach, you're going to make it, you're going to play for Australia, blah, blah, Then you get there and you get told, no, you're not, never going to make it, go back to Shield. And actually don't waste time in Shield because now you're 27, you're never going to play for Australia, you're just taking someone else's spot, you need to get out and we need to go younger. Mm. And those kind of things. So you get these disgruntlements and you get these false promises and you get these lack of reward for, for work and then why would you follow? Like why would you follow, especially when we've always had the little, the little kind of um, stereotypes of it's the New South Wales cricket team that wears the Australian cap. So if you're a Victorian, and that's what you see with Glenn Maxwell. like How Glenn Maxwell got treated is a reason why, if I was Glenn Maxwell, I wouldn't want to follow in the footsteps of of a captain who's usually from New South Wales.
0: Yep, And I think um, it's interesting that you talk about the difficulty of following because in Cameron Bancroft, there was someone who fitted the typical bill of being too willing to follow. So Smith kind of writes in one of his pieces that um, followership is usually associated with some sort of aimless... Um, ill-minded, ill-considered act of faith, which I think pretty accurately describes how Cameron Bancroft came to be tucking sandpaper down his jockstrap in South Africa. But I think that that crisis, those crises work in sync. The leaders didn't have anyone to follow them and they kind of work in sync, which is pretty much what Smith says. He said that you've got to acknowledge that there are two sides of the coin. So that decline in followership because of the system then impacted on the leader's ability to lead throughout the system at every level, for those reasons, i.e. the mm. Maxwell example that you went with.
2: Casey, can I ask you a question mm-hmm. regarding Sandpaper Gate? Yeah. As a, as a, just a, a general cricket fan, mm. you, know, you probably only really care when it comes to summertime. You're not following during footy season, of course. You following no, your beloved definitely Eagles. definitely not. <laughs> did, how much did Sandpaper Gate affect you? Um, like How much did you care that your beloved boys in baggy greens <laughs> rubbed some coarse fabric on a ball?
1: I mean, integrity in sport affects me a lot. So, I was affected by that. Um, I mean, I didn't—I wasn't watching that test match. I wasn't paying attention to it until it happened. Um, but I was really disappointed because, um, I guess, yeah, as an Australian, um, they're representative of something that's um, that I'm a part of. So that does reflect back on me, especially as a sports fan. So, yes, it did affect me. Um, it affected me. A lot this year predominantly because um I was traveling a lot which I was fortunate enough to do this year with my study and I spent a lot of time uh in the UK um and English cricket fans over there were very quick to point out to me what Australia had done and how much of a disgrace our Australian cricket team was so that was difficult to endure and a bit embarrassing um especially as a armchair cricket fan I didn't have a lot of comebacks to go back to them I just had to sit there and take it really so yeah that stuff bothers me a lot um even though I'm not as invested in the sport, but I'm invested in integrity in sport. So, yeah, yeah, I was very affected by that. And um, the constant sort of questioning about their sentencing and whether they should be playing and, you know, because they just went through an appeal process, didn't they, to get overturned. Yeah. And I just think, like, that stuff really bothers me because I just think you have your rules in place, you broke them, you've got your sentence, just serve it out and just do it humbly. But when that sort of stuff comes up to try and, like, Weasel around those sort of sanctions like that bothers me because um I think that's really unethical. So that kind of side of the the game really does affect me as a fan.
2: So I think that's the part of the points that Gideon makes in in his book as well is that this professionalisation this and this elite environment that they find themselves in separates them from what they were once upon a time as representatives of the greater Australian public. Yep. And so they don't like they don't think that they they. They went the appeal. The Australian cricket captain went for the appeal because he thought, well, no, I've been harshly dealt. Not, I had this responsibility and I let down my nation mm. in a cricketing sense, but still let down his nation. And yes, he was obviously very distraught when he got back. But then after a while, and the same with Warner trying to do whatever he's been doing, Bancroft's been fairly quiet, so I have no rule for ball with him. But yeah, they've forgotten that it's a massive privilege. They get, they get caught up in the stresses and they're trying to make it and then they realise, well, we play cricket. For lots of money. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Mm. And everyone like us is like, yeah, you play cricket for lots of money. It's pretty good. How about you just don't cheat and mm. don't get yourself sucked into cheating? Mm. It makes us look bad when we go overseas and get bagged out by English fans.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. So how culpable was Darren Lehman in all of this? Well, he has to be culpable because that's
2: it's either he has to be culpable or we don't need coaches in cricket systems. Yep. I agree because that's like that's that's their role, and you've seen Langer be very very present since he's been instilled in saying, "Well, now, like, as much as I'm here to try and teach people to bat properly, which he's obviously been doing, because that's you know that's what, that's what he's there for. He's also there to be like, I want to teach you how to play properly in the sense of this is the attitudes, this is the mentalities, this is the behaviours that are acceptable, and how to do that. And I think Lehman was very was very basic because at that time. To borrow Gideon's almost Gideon's exact words, like they needed to go back to basics, like they just wanted to win cricket.
0: One of the things that I thought was interesting was the consistent use of the term kid to describe Cameron Bancroft and other young players within the pathway system. Which, given Cameron Bancroft is 25, is a very interesting way of referring to him. And Casey, I want to throw to you here, because to me this is very much like, or feels very much like, using boys as a term to describe male sporting groups.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a way to alleviate someone of responsibility, isn't it? Um, Like, that's why language is so important in these situations, because you really need to read into what the person is trying to tell you when they're using those words, because they're not just, like, slips of tongues or colloquialisms for no reason. Um, I think in that situation, from my perspective as being the aforementioned armchair cricket fan... Bancroft was the one that they were trying to get off the most as, you know, the innocent, like you were saying before, he's obviously led astray. He was just trying to do his thing and do what he's told and be the good boy. Um, So I think that turn of phrase is very deliberate and they were trying to do something very careful with that. And I think to a certain extent it's worked because in the public sense, I think we look at him, I mean, well, I look at him from the outside not being so involved as a fan as not as culpable as the other two, despite him actually having the sandpaper down his pants, which I think is really interesting way to frame that situation.
0: Mm. And I think on one hand, I think when young players come into a team, you should try and absolve them of pressure in a performance sense and like allow them to settle. But I think that the behavioural, the ramifications of using something like kid is that it also absolves them of having to uphold a certain standard of behaviour mm. because of the the immaturity that is connotated by that term and I just that really stood out to me as something that I guess throughout the book you could almost see Gideon rolling his eyes at things just in the way that everything is framed it's not so much him ramming it down your throat as the way that he shapes each argument and that was one that just stood out for me I'm like that doesn't check out at all
1: no you're right Um, for a 25 year old yeah He surely he was certainly very well aware of what he was doing.
0: So the conclusion of the book, and I am going to read this because I think this was the passage that perhaps best summed up what Hay has argued. So in Cape Town, the players took the fall. Exhorted to win, they strove too desperately. Encouraged by senses of impunity, they took a risk too many. Exhausted by an apparatus that runs them hard, they had a lapse of judgment. Pushed up to the line, they stumbled across it. And cricket sorts a lace from the idea that here were just three bad boys. I mean, as a paragraph to finish the book, mm. that's almost perfect because it doesn't absolve the players of responsibility. It doesn't admit that they have culpability and blame, but it also acknowledges the environment that thrived around them and the set of circumstances that allowed us to get to this point. Yeah, I, I thought it took all of those factors in quite nicely and refused to be essentialist about, oh, no, it's actually not Steve Smith and Dave Warner, it's the system. It refused to ignore the fact that they have agency, Mm -hmm. but they also operate in a system that encouraged certain behaviours that allowed them to get to a point where it was too much.
1: It's also just an excellent piece of writing.
0: It is, but I, I think that that's probably the strength, is that it refuses to be essentialist. Yeah, And even when you saw a couple of weeks ago... When the Cricket Australia review came out, people started going, oh, well, if there's all these organisational failings, we shouldn't have these players banned, which is not what Hayes is advoca- advocating because the players still have culpability. He's just mm. saying that all of these factors also exist and need to be fixed as well as player behaviour. Mm. Was probably the single biggest outtake for-